Hey, Southman City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we are so grateful to have you as a part of our community. Just a few reminders and updates in the life of our community together. First of all, we've been talking about tables. Some of them have already launched, but there's some more opportunities to jump in, and this is just our way of being together outside of our gatherings. So first of all, if you're feeling new to South Bend City Church, this is your chance to hear more about who we are, how we practice together, how we approach quote-unquote digital church, and to meet some of our staff and others who are new to South Bend City Church. It's our new to South Bend City Church virtual table. It's happening on October 2nd at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time via Zoom. And this table is specifically created for our long-distance community members and for our local community members that find the digital space to be more accessible. Make sure to RSVP in the link in the show notes below. And if you can't make it this time, please look for future opportunities in the month ahead. Upon registration, you'll get your Zoom link, and we look forward to seeing you there. The other opportunity is for those of you that can join us in person here in South Bend. Maybe you're an introvert like me, or maybe you're new to the community and are a little tentative about jumping into a semester-long or a year-long table group. And so we created Open Table, which is happening second and fourth Sundays after our second gathering, starting on September 24th. This is an opportunity for you to come and just meet some new people, and you can jump in once, twice a month, or whenever your schedule allows. This is something that we will not be providing lunch or childcare for, so please bring lunch for yourself, or you can bring stuff to share with others. And kids are more than welcome. Just make sure to keep an eye on your own kids when you come. We hope that you join us for one of those open tables. And if you have any other questions or are interested in other table groups, you can head to the link in the show notes below. Also, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your community, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to do all of the things we do, and we are so grateful. To give financially, you can go to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. That's also in the show notes below. And once again, thank you. All right, we're starting our series on Romans. It is week one, and Jason gave us an introduction to what the next nine-ish months of our life together will look like. One of the most talked about, preached about, regularly studied texts in the New Testament is the book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a community of Jesus' followers roughly three decades after Jesus. It's been especially prominent in Protestant and evangelical spaces, but what if the way it's usually talked about misses the point? The early church was an impossible community. People somehow found a radical capacity for belonging with one another across every imaginable line of difference. And the letter Paul wrote to this early church shows his own wrestling with how the experience of Christ makes this impossible community possible. So what if this text that's been centered in so many religious spaces is talking about not just our own personal reconciliation with God, but also the ways that we can belong to each other? So between now and next spring, we'll take a path through Romans that might be unfamiliar for those who have walked the quote-unquote Romans road, but with a desire to recover that radical message of this powerful text. Thanks again for joining us. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Uh, My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to add my welcome to the welcome that you've already heard today. We're honored that you are here. Uh, Roughly 30 years after Jesus, a man sat in a room and wrote a letter. He probably transcribed it through a secretary. Uh, He's probably somewhere in Greece. And he was sending this letter to a group of people that he hadn't met yet, but he anticipated that he would meet them. He was looking forward to that. 
And he sends this very long letter ahead of time, anticipating that future meeting. Now, what I don't think he anticipated when he wrote it, as far as I can tell, I don't think he anticipated that for the next 2,000 years, literally billions of people would read this letter. Many of them would revere this letter. I don't think he anticipated that whole movements in history would be spawned by this letter. I don't think he anticipated the fights that would happen because of this letter. Sometimes the wars, and I mean sometimes literal wars that would be fought over this letter. But there he is sitting in this room in Greece somewhere writing a letter, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, The letter I'm talking about is found in the New Testament in the Bible. It's called the Book of Romans. And this is where we are headed, not just today, uh, but over the next season and many of our Sunday morning gatherings. Uh, Now, when I bring up this letter from the New Testament called Romans, in my experience, to paint in very broad strokes, uh, there's roughly like three reactions. Uh, You've got people who find in this letter something really beautiful and stirring. They feel like there in the book of Romans, you've got this perfect picture of the systematic coherence of Christian theology and thought. Again, it's a bit of a caricature, but I find people who kind of end up there, right? I find other people who maybe at the other end of the spectrum, like they kind of have a hard time with the guy named Paul who wrote this letter. They find him to be curmudgeonly, (laughs) complicated, misogynistic, difficult, troubling, even problematic. We'd be better off without him. That's like another end of the spectrum. And then, of course, there's people who've never read the Book of Romans or had an encounter with it, which is probably plenty of you here at Southland City Church as well. And I actually really love that spread wherever you sort of relate on the spectrum of of relationships to this letter that we're going to talk about for a while. But before we get into it, I thought I would just like check in and see if you would do a little bit of self-disclosure about your relationship or lack thereof to these 16 chapters written in the New Testament that we call the letter to the Romans. So let's start here. If you wouldn't mind, just raise a hand if you've like, had some encounter with this text in the past. Maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard it preached about. That's a lot of us. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, anybody here familiar with the Romans Road? Yeah, a few of you are out there. Uh, if you don't know the Romans Road, um, this is a sort of program for lifting certain verses from the book of Romans and using them evangelistically. I myself am a certified practitioner of the Romans Road, and I have complicated feelings about that, which will become clear over the next several months of teaching. Uh, But that's like a way that it's shown up sort of culturally in the West, especially among evangelicals. Uh, Anybody want to raise your hand and say, this is all new to me. Never read the book. Maybe you never even heard of the book. This is kind of a fresh encounter. Awesome. I love that about our church. Um, So we've got a spectrum here, and I think it's also helpful to remember that we've got a spectrum of relationships to this text as we get into it. But now I want to check in with you a little bit more deeply about this. Um, I want to know, when I tell you that we're going to hang out in the book of Romans for eh, nine months or so, um, I wonder, like, what thoughts come to mind or how do you feel? Now, we don't have time for a whole sermon from you because that's my job today. But uh, anybody want to just disclose, like, when I tell you that we're going to be hanging out with this letter for quite a while, what thoughts come to mind and what do you feel, Michelle? Oh, that's so sweet that you distinguished me from that. Uh, Michelle, <laughs> Michelle said I'm familiar with the white evangelical take. Now she's curious to hear mine, and it means a lot that you sort of carved me out from that, that block. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that. What else? What else? Yes. Excited. Paul's excited. Nice. Yes. Uh, I've done a lot of study of Romans 12, so mm. I'm really excited for you to do your take on 
Interesting, Romans 12, juicy text there. Uh, you've done a lot of study on Romans 12 and you're curious to hear what we do with it, nice. Stick around, that'll be uh, roughly two and a half years from now when we get there. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Kind of, uh, yeah. Restful, nice. Nice long stretch, yeah, thanks, yeah. Yes. People pick out certain phrases, mm -hmm. lift them from the context and use that to define their life. Yes. Tom was talking about how people sometimes pick up certain phrases from this text and use it to kind of construct their life, uh, maybe out of context a little bit. Maybe we can kind of work against that a little bit. I hear Chaz saying, why? That's great. Why are we doing this? That's awesome, Chaz. We'll try to figure that out together, okay, bud? Yes, sir. Yeah, I love that. If you didn't hear that, you're saying you're new here. Uh, Paul, for you, is a little kind of like I was talking about, complicated maybe. Um, so curious to see where we go with that. Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? Cool. Well, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, today, I'm not going to like really getting into teaching the text as much as I want to frame our approach to the text a little bit. Uh, and, and, and describe some of the motivation behind it. So I'm going to do some framing, and then we're going to move from the framing to the motivation, because I really want to make the case to you today that this is uh, worthwhile and important, and I want to sort of set us in a certain trajectory in terms of what we're looking for while we do this. Let's talk a little bit about our approach. Um, I'll just come out of the gate right now and say I think there are ways that um, the Bible in general, Paul's letters in particular, and maybe even especially the book of Romans, can be and have been used problematically. And I think one of the challenges of working with something like the Book of Romans is that there's a difference between understanding what he's saying versus what he's doing. Let me work this out with you for a little bit. I think there's a difference between understanding what Paul is saying and watching what he's doing. And I think that we can go wrong if all we know is what he's saying and we don't understand what he's doing. So what's the difference? Well, let me pivot to a, a metaphor for you, another cultural artifact from a, a more recent time. And we're going to talk about the difference between what it's saying and what it's doing to see if we can kind of work this out, right? Uh, any Radiohead fans in the room? Three of you. That's some white music. That's right. I know. Uh, Radiohead. I'm a bit of a fan myself. I've been to some concerts for Radiohead, this band from the UK. And they released an album in the year 2003 called Hail to the Thief. Now, let's do a little imaginative work here as we work this out. Imagine, if you will, that there's a strange niche religious sect of people who've decided that Radiohead and their albums are their sacred text. So they revere Radiohead the way that Christians might revere the Bible, and they hope to hear from God through Radiohead's work the way that we might hope to hear from God through the Bible, right? So you have this strange sort of niche sect. And imagine that the members of this niche sect don't understand the difference between what they say and what they do, like what they're trying to accomplish with the things that they say. They just live at the kind of literal level, right? And so this group of people that fall in love with Radiohead, give homage to Radiohead, revere Radiohead, and try to like obey what they learned from Radiohead, receive this album in 2003, which is called Hail to the Thief. You might say something like, blessed are the thieves, right? And so you think, well, that's where the blessing comes. There's praise given to the thieves. And so this whole group of people apply themselves to the work of petty larceny. 
Like that becomes their way of being in the world because their sacred text says to them that thievery is lifted up and resurrected, like raised up, like helpful, like honored, given praise, right? Well, then you can imagine like this reactionary movement by other people who see all that ridiculousness and don't just call those people ridiculous, but all, all of a sudden begin to heap scorn on this album called Hail to the Thief because they're not a fan of thievery. And they think thievery is wrong and it's bad. And so they, say, they look at this Hail to the Thief and they say, well, that says Hail to the Thief and I think thievery is bad. So I reject not just Radiohead's followers, but I reject Radiohead themselves, right? Completely different reactions to this album, but they're doing the same thing. They're living at the literal level of what it says and they're reacting to it. And they have seemingly no idea of what Radiohead was trying to do with an album called Hail to the Thief in the year 2003. Let's go back to 2003 for a moment, right? Uh, for those who may be listening on the podcast or who aren't um, very aware of American political context, uh, the United States president enjoys the praise that comes from a song played by the Marine Band, which is Hail to the Chief. Chief. Yeah, right? This is a song that refers to the president of the United States. In the year 2003, President George W. Bush was in office, and he's in an administration where executing a war in Iraq. And Tom York and Radiohead had strong protest feelings about this. There's a big difference between, well, what does it say? It says, hail to the thief, on the one hand. On the other hand, saying, well, what are they doing? And what they're doing is they're very sort of cleverly leveraging something subversive, some kind of protest music. They're grabbing a cultural idiom and twisting it to make a point, right? Wildly different when you pay attention not just to what it says at a literal level, but what's it doing in the world? And I think the same could be said for getting Romans or any other biblical text right. And a lot of what I'm going to try to help us with is to understand not just what Paul said, but what was he doing? How are all these arguments and strange ideas, all these theological movements, all these interactions with older texts working there to accomplish something that he's hoping for with the people that he's writing to? So what's Paul doing? Like, what is Paul doing when he writes the letter to the Romans or any other letter for that matter? Well, before I, I push further into what Paul is doing, let me talk to you about what happened to Paul. This is really important, I think, to get him right. So let's go back before the time that Paul is a leader in the early church uh, to a time when Paul discovers that there's such a thing as an early church and he has a problem with it. Uh, Paul, who grows up in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, ends up in Jerusalem. and He becomes a member of what is uh, often known as the Pharisee sect of Jews. Now, if you've read the gospel texts, maybe you've heard of the Pharisees. They're kind of the boogeymen there. Forget that for a minute. Ignore that for a minute. When I say Pharisee, what I mean is a particular um, group of Jewish people in the first century who believed that it was urgently important that the Jewish people remain rigidly faithful to God's law because they wanted God to do something about the occupation that was oppressing them. They're not unlike other Jewish people in the first century who want God to do something, but different Jewish people in the first century have different approaches, different ways of figuring out how they're going to be faithful, what it means to wait for this liberation to come for them. And for the Pharisee, it was about maintaining purity among God's people and obedience to the law. So that's a pretty clear worldview for Paul. And at the time, he bumps into this uh, understanding that there's something happening to disrupt that whole project for the Jewish people, and it's the Jewish Christian believers and their Jesus. Now, by the time he bumps into all this, Jesus has already been crucified, resurrected, gone to be with God. Uh, but he keeps bumping into these Jesus people, and there's problems with them. They, um, they're rattling the purity that he's trying to maintain among the Jewish people so that they can receive the kind of blessing and protection that they're waiting for from God. 
He, like, he's concerned with God being faithful to God's people, and he thinks God's people need to be faithful to God to get there. And he sees this whole Christian movement as a radical, blasphemous departure from that faithfulness. And so Paul, he gets pretty uh, zealous about it. He's the, you ever like work with people or have people in your family who have that like rigid bias toward action? You know what I'm talking about? You might be one of them, right? You got the people who kind of like lay back and kind of wait and see how things happen. And then you have the people who just need to seize everything with everything they've got. Thank God those people exist in the world. Nothing would happen without them. Paul's one of those people. And he just brings all of his energy, all of his passion, all of his capacity, all of his time to this project of dealing with this problem that is corrupting his people. There's a moment in the book of Acts where we read about a man who becomes known as the first martyr of the church, a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is one of these people that, for people like Paul, represents the corruption, the invasion, the blasphemy, the, uh, the impurity that is threatening his people. And the people around Stephen react to this blasphemy, this impurity, this threat by stoning him to death. And we read that Paul was there essentially endorsing this thing, condoning this thing that happens to him. So Paul's got all this passionate energy that I'm sure at the time he understood as an act of faithfulness an act of protection, but he sees the world very clearly, at least he thinks, right? He's like, here's, uh, here's what faithfulness looks like, here's what blasphemy looks like. Here's the people who are in, here's the people who are out. Here's, here's, here's um, the people among whom God is present and the people among whom God is not present. He's got all of this very sort of neatly ordered in the world and a way of dividing the world, right? And then he heads out for Damascus to continue his work of persecuting the Christians and trying to deal with this problem. And I know some of you are familiar with this story, but I hope you can hear the, the surprise in it. I hope you can hear the, the paradox in it. I hope you can feel the, the challenge in what happens to him there. So he's on his way to Damascus when he essentially, in a, in a moment of divine vision or theophany, meets the resurrected Christ on the road. It's so dramatic, it blinds him, knocks him off his horse. He walks around blind for a few days there, which might be a powerful metaphor too. Um, but in that moment... He has no doubt that he's met God on the road to Damascus. But the problem for him is that when he meets God on the road to Damascus, God meets him in the guise of Jesus. That's the first problem. I'll get into the second one in a second. The first problem is that God meets him in the guise of Jesus. Now, almost everybody listening to me right now, even if you haven't had a Christian background, I'm guessing almost everyone here has spent most of your life in the West uh, in cultural spaces that have been deeply shaped by Christian memory, even if they aren't very Christian anymore. You, we, we live in a world where there are a lot of buildings that have crosses on them. A lot of us wear crosses around our necks. And the problem with that is that it puts too much conditioning around the, the scandal, the strangeness, the provocation of, of meeting God in the body of a man who's been crucified as a criminal. I don't even know how to, uh, like I've been searching for metaphors that might convey the, the disruption of that, the impossibility of that, the incompatibility for Paul between these two categories. He's got God, and then he's got this criminal who died on a cross, and Jesus wishes that this criminal's followers would just stop doing what they're doing. And then on the road to Damascus, he meets God in the guise of that criminal. There's a radical incompatibility between these categories. It blows up the neat and tidy ordering of the world that he had been living with, where he knew how to separate light from dark and good from bad and right from wrong and in from out. He had all of that hardwired for himself his entire life. And then on that moment, on the road to Damascus, all of those categories are obliterated. I can't help but think maybe that's why he walked around blind for a while. 
That the, the disorientation of that was so extraordinary that he couldn't even find his literal, physical bearings for a little while. That's what happens to Paul. And before I go even further into the effect of that, let me turn uh, toward a modern example that might sound strange, but it's the best thing I've come up with to try to explain all this. Is anybody paying attention to the updates on nuclear fusion? Yeah, a few of you are. Come on, this is a big deal. So if you don't know, uh, for a long time we've been on the hunt to successfully conduct nuclear fusion. So nuclear fission is when we split atoms, and that releases enormous amounts of energy. It creates both atomic weapons and nuclear energy. Uh, so obviously, um, massive problems with atomic weapons, but even with nuclear energy, it creates all this radioactive waste. So that's fusion, or sorry, fission, where you split atoms. We've been on the hunt for nuclear fusion. And one of the reasons we know that nuclear fusion can create enormous amounts of energy is that the sun runs on nuclear fusion. That's what's happening in that orb that gives us all the light and heat and energy that we need here. Fusion is happening. And essentially when, when fusion happens, you, ha you have two atoms that like, really shouldn't like, belong to one another, but with enough heat and pressure, they overcome the resisting forces that repel them, and they merge. So like for example, take hydrogen. If you take two hydrogen atoms and you try to marry them, merge them, force them into one, they don't want to do that because they both have a positive electric charge. And if you remember anything about high school physics, uh, two positive atoms, they, they repel each other. You need opposite charges to attract atoms to one another, right? But two hydrogen atoms, if you can overcome the repelling forces that make them want to run away from each other, often with great heat and pressure, what's going to happen is there's other forces that actually draw them toward each other and fuse them into something new. In the case of hydrogen, it becomes helium. One neutron just floats away, and then there's enormous amounts of clean, waste-free energy that are created by this. So we've been on the, by the way, I like it when I say we, right? We've been on the hunt for this for quite a while. We've been working on this very seriously. I mean, we, the human race. And in just like the last little while, like the last few months, this is a really big deal. Scientists have successfully conducted nuclear fusion at a small scale a few times now. This is a really big deal for us because it turns out that if you take two things that seem fundamentally incompatible and you overcome the forces that are repelling them to reveal the other forces that are drawing them toward one another, it unleashes remarkable amounts of energy. Something like that seems to have happened for Paul on that road. First, his categories had no room for the compatibility of God and that man who hung on a cross. For him, these two things are as far apart and incompatible as you could possibly conceive. And yet in that moment, they are fused for him. And that begins to create other fusions for him. Like maybe it's not just that God was there in that man on the cross, but maybe God's there in the people that I've been persecuting. Which when God's speaking in the guise of Jesus to Paul says, you've been persecuting me. When Paul knows that he's been out there coming against the Christians, there's another fusion that happens there. Now, I don't know if you've um, had an actual Damascus Road moment. If so, we can talk about it later. I would love to learn about that. But uh, it strikes me this is actually not an uncommon experience for people. It doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, the way that you and I divide the world, the really clear categories that make sense of the experience that we have around us get blown up, get fused back together, get, get obliterated, and it unleashes remarkable energy. I can think of one common story that does get told at Stop and Study Church, and I know this is not everybody's story here, but one story that gets told here is um, the number of people who in an earlier season of life or faith um, would have thought of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters as out of bounds, as something about their identity that like, doesn't belong or doesn't fit. And something happened, maybe quickly or maybe slowly, to change that for us. 
And perhaps what happened for you in that moment, and I'm not putting this on everyone, but if you've been through that, what might have happened for you is perhaps in the very place and the very people and the very experience that you were taught was far from God or out of bounds for God, perhaps you met God there. And it disrupted things pretty dramatically for you, right? I've heard that story commonly, not just um, for people who think of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters as friends or family members, but also I've heard that story from a number of queer members themselves here at Southland City Church and their relationship to themselves, that they thought of their own life, their own body, their own sexuality, their own experience as forsaken by God, cursed by God. And then later have come to have a different relationship with those things. And what I have seen over and over and over again is that when the categories break in one part of your life, they start breaking everywhere. That can be how it goes. That the kind of binary black and white, left and right, in and out duality that we use to try to make sense of the world, once that stops working in part of your life, it might stop working in all of your life. And you might find that that's the invitation to a different kind of vision, a different way of thinking about God and a different way of thinking about people, maybe even a different way of thinking about your own experience. It seems like something like that happened to Paul. Now back to the question of not just what did he say, but what was he doing? One of the challenges with reading Paul's letters, like in the context where you and I find ourselves, you know, here in the West, in the year 2023, is that um, there are a lot of spaces where Paul's letters have been made almost entirely about like you and your personal sin problem and you and Jesus, or me and my personal sin problem and me and Jesus. Now, I'm not saying Paul isn't reckoning with some of those things. I'm not saying that those aren't present in these letters, but I don't think that's the primary thing that Paul is doing for at least a couple of reasons. One, um, you do know that everybody Paul writes to is already a believer. Like the audience for these letters are, are not people who haven't had an experience of Jesus. The audience for these letters are people who are already in on that experience, a part of that community there. The other reason I don't really like see that as the, the primary thrust, thrust of what he's doing is that there, there's, uh, there's two terms that show up over and over and over and over again in his letters. Jews and Gentiles. Every, every church that Paul writes to seems to be having some version of the same basic problem, which is this Christ experience, something about the gospel, has drawn us together across impossible lines of difference. Something about this gospel has helped people find each other and belong to each other in spite of some radical incompatibilities. I mean, when you set first century Jews and first century Gentiles next to each other, you've got incompatibilities of politics, you've got incompatibilities of ethnicity, you've got incompatibilities of consciousness, like the things that they're conscientious about, their morals, you've got incompatibilities that feel ethnic and racial, all of that stirring up, and yet somehow this gospel unleashed in the world is doing fusion in the world. It's helping people overcome these impossible differences to belong to each other in ways that are redemptive and beautiful and true and just. I think that's what Paul's doing. He's translating that fusion experience on the road to Damascus into the world. He knows a kind of love now that calls all of us to each other, and he thinks that his gospel is capable of nurturing and sustaining that relationship between us. And this brings us back to why we might want to read this letter today. Because I think if the church could be a place, if you and I could be people 
who learn how to belong to each other deeply across impossible lines of difference. That might be radical right now. That might be transformative. I don't mean the kind of superficial, polite sitting next to each other while we talk about nothing hard. <laughs> I mean deep commitment to one another across lines of difference, different experience, different identity, different backgrounds, different worldviews, a way of belonging together that matters. Uh, I think a lot of us show up in workplaces that don't know how to do that more and more. I think a lot of us feel this in our politics. Um, I, I don't know if we're actually more divided than I, I see a lot of arguments on both sides of that. I know I feel the divisions, the fractures. They feel energized, right? Uh, I think we're having a hard time figuring out how the United States could actually be a, a society for every kind of person across lines of race and income and worldview. Um, some of you heading into the holiday season, which is right around the corner, let's be honest, are going to find yourself at tables that are difficult, where it's hard to know how to really belong to one another. And so what a good time to read a letter that tells us that the love of God is doing something in this story so radical that it might fuse us together across lines of impossible incompatibility. I also think in the timing of South and City Church, this is important. So sometime in the winter, January, February, March, we're going to move into the Tribune. Whenever, whenever we're done, we're going to move into the Tribune. That's our new building downtown. Now, I don't want to make too much of the new building, but I don't want to make too little of it either for what it means for us as a church, right? Um, a lot of us who discerned this project together, we had a hunch pretty early on that something happens when you go from being the scrappy little insurgency tucked away in a hard part of town to find behind a gate, you go from that to owning and operating in like a very prominent building in the heart of downtown South Bend. For example, you might discover that the community around you expects more of you. Uh, we call ourselves South Bend City Church. Confession, when I came up with that name, it was just meant to be plain. I just was looking for the most obvious thing to call a church. Now I realize it kind of sounds audacious. We are the church of the city of South Bend, which was never the heart behind it, but we're stuck with the name, and we're going to be down there downtown, and I think people in the city of South Bend might then expect us to be a church for the city of South Bend. I don't know if you know this, there are big and complicated lines of difference in the city of South Bend. Whether it's uh, the redlining that still affects the map, where uh, racial inequality is stacked on top of economic inequality, that's still with us today, that's just one example. South Bend is a city with really hard lines of difference. And we're going to be right there in the literal, physical, geographic heart of it with a fairly prominent building. And people might have a reasonable hope that when they're with us, they find a community of people who are learning together how the love that Paul encountered on that road is going to shape us and help us hold one another and belong to each other. I think there's actually a kind of genius at work in Paul's letters. Um, in the way that he is like, you can just feel him grabbing everything he can get his hands on and throwing it at the cause of our belonging to one another. He's reaching for theological arguments from ancient and Jewish experience. He's reaching for cultural relevance for the Gentile believers who don't have a relationship to those texts. He's grabbing everything he can to plead with these people to understand how the gospel is going to make it possible for them to belong to each other. And I'd like us to tap into that genius to hear it too. So this is why we are doing Romans for approximately the next 723 weeks. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, and we are going to do other things on Sundays. Not every Sunday will be about Romans, but it'll be a, a major thread that we follow through the fall and the spring. Uh, I want to give you um, a few sort of like 
principles to carry with us through this. And then I want to turn to one text at the center of that letter to wrap it up. First of all, a, few a handful of principles to carry with us. Some of these I've already talked about, but I'm going to add a few. So let me put these on the screen. Uh, first, oh, sorry. Um, sorry, Carrie. I jumbled things on you again. There we go. This is the first one. And this is a trick. I'm kind of coming out of the gate swinging here. Some people treat the letter of Romans uh, like a systematic theology, meaning it was kind of written for all time, for all people. Now, here's a little nuance. First of all, I don't, I don't think um, the letter isn't for us, but you know it wasn't written to you, right? I'll say that again. You know Paul didn't write the letter of Romans to you, right? He wasn't picturing people in the year 2023 in South Bend, Indiana when he wrote this letter. So, so he's, he's not necessarily doing like universal, eternal systematics. I think he's a practical theologian. I mean, he, he's using theology for the actual work of building the community, which is a different enterprise. If you're looking for a perfect system, I don't think you're going to get it in Romans. If you're looking for practical theology that meets us, I think you're going to find it. Uh, next. It's hard to know what it means if you don't know what it meant. I'll say it again. It's hard to know what it means if you don't know what it meant. Uh, we're going to work that out together. Uh, next. This is similar to that. I've already said it. Knowing what it says doesn't matter if you don't know what it did. Now, here's the good news. I'm here to help you with that. You know what's even better news? I have people helping me with that. Uh, I'm not a full-blown scholar in any of these things, but I have really strong resources that run very deep, and I even have some scholarly friends who are helping me work this out along the way. Um, knowing what it says doesn't matter if you don't know what it did, and we're going to help you understand what it did. Next just because an interpretation is the only one you've heard, that doesn't mean it's the most well-founded, historically corroborated, or widely held Christian view. <laughs> this is a hard thing about like pastoring uh, in the Western world is um, most of us who've had church background spend a lot of that church background in one particular lane, and that lane has its own interpretations, its own theologies, and it can be really, really hard to understand that what feels to you like the entire theological world of Christianity might have only been a cul-de-sac in a much larger neighborhood. And another one of the things that we try to do at South and City Church is expose you to the kind of wider streams. There's um, 2,000 years in the whole planet, east and west, north and south, of people grappling with these texts. And I'm going to try to help you see a larger map of interpretation. Uh, then this, we're looking for God, Right? We're looking for love. We're looking for belonging. We're looking for community. We're looking for possibility. We're not doing this to make a point or to win an argument. We're on the hunt for God, for love, belonging, community, and possibility. And I think as long as we keep that in front of us, we'll draw the most useful things out of this text. Um, let me give you a taste of this letter, because I think it speaks to the energy that drives this letter. Right in the center of the letter to the Romans, in chapter 8, which is like literally halfway through the letter, you get one, one of those moments that can either feel like a center of gravity on the one hand or a mountaintop on the other, where you, you kind of get what Paul is driving at. And I just want you to hear this before we wrap it up, because I think this distills some of that energy that was unleashed in Paul when he met Jesus unexpectedly on that road to Damascus. And I think we're going to find the same energy being unleashed in us. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If God, it's God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, those aren't theoretical experiences for the people he's writing to. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you better believe that he saw that love drawing us toward one another. So that's where we're going. Sound good? Um, if you want to, there's Bibles in the corner over there. If you want to grab one and take it home, I'd encourage you to start reading the book of Romans. You can easily find it online as well. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, the Bible is readily available. If you want to do some reading, then we're going to jump into the text more properly uh, next week. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? A reminder, if you signed up for the new to SBCC table that's happening uh, after the gathering today up in the mezzanine, we'd love to see you up there. That being said, that may you encounter the same love that Paul encountered, and may it disintegrate your categories of who is in and who is out. And may that love draw us toward one another across impossible lines of difference, not just for our own sake, but for a city and a world where we desperately need to know that we belong to each other. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.